And it, it was just overwhelming uh, to see the kind of response that we could get and just how quickly we could have people reaching out to us, not just just a little conversation, genuinely inquiring about furniture off of one ad that I spent $15 on. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Derek Hartfixen, owner of the furniture company The Native Craftsman. Derek is a fifth generation woodworker, but even though he loved the craft, he didn't go straight into the trade. Yet after pursuing other professions, he found his way back to furniture making and started his own company in 2015. But from then to now, it wasn't smooth sailing. He went from being successful to shutting the doors on his company. Now, a little bit older and a little bit wiser, he's taking a second shot at the furniture business and loving where it's taking him. So follow along as we talk about originality in your work, pricing for different markets, coming back from failure, and much more. So let's start the episode and hear about Derek's journey in his own words. Boy, you know, the story is certainly long as far as, you know, because it's been my entire life. I, I was born into a family of generational woodcraftsmen, my father, my grandfather, it goes up to my great, great grandfather, uh, the one that actually immigrated to, um, to the US from Norway. You know, I grew up in my father and grandfather's cabinet shops. They were two shops uh, tied together, um, separated by a wall in the middle. And I literally grew up playing in my dad's shop. So I was always around professional woodworking, uh, big machinery, uh, 24 seven, even actually had a store at 1.2 called the woodworkers dream. And that was, uh, that was connected to the building on the, the opposite side. And, uh, so he sold, he had a kiln, he sold lumber, he sold tools, hand tools, and, uh, was pretty well known in the community. He also made uh, cedar strip canoes. And so there hasn't really been a part of my life that I have not been, uh, just embedded, uh, with woodworking and, and having a, a respect for it at the very least and, and a knack for it as well. You know, from a kid, uh, you know, I was building little toys, whether it be cars or what have you. Um, my biggest thing was uh, finding plywood. I'd find Baltic first plywood in my dad's bins, walk up and ask him if I could have it. And if, if I could, I would draw some, you know, wicked sword on it and I'd have them cut it out when they had some time. And I would, you know, I'd arm the neighborhood, essentially all me and my buddies, and we'd just have fun like that. So it's, it kind of started off from just it being a, uh, a tool, a tool to be able to create something that I enjoyed. I took a liking uh, you know, into woodworking as, as a child. It just wasn't something that I considered doing. It, it wasn't even a thought that it'd be something I would do. And, uh, and then into high school, I was building in the, in the woodworking class there, I was building furniture and, uh, we actually had a, a construction class where we were building sheds and, um, and lofts and such, and we would sell them and put money back into the program. And they tied it into a program where we were able to start earning points towards an apprenticeship. And I was quite certain at that point that I would be you know, I'd be swinging a hammer and, and, and being a frame carpenter, but uh, it, it didn't take long for me to, to know I didn't want to swing a hammer for the rest of my life. I liked my knees and, um, and I just didn't really see that being the life for me at that point. So I was very fond of acting and uh, the film industry. And so that was always kind of there in the back of my head. That's what I ultimately wanted to do. I wanted to get away from woodworking and that I didn't, I just didn't want to see myself doing that for the rest of my life. And uh, I graduated high school and I started working at a door shop. Um, so I was running a door machine that bunch of uh, air compressors hooked up to it and routers. I was routing out hinges and, you know, throwing, throwing doors together. And um, that was the, that was my first taste at something to where I, I was certain 
at that point that I was not going to be woodworking and I wanted to, um, I wanted to chase after this dream of, of acting. And so I moved to a couple of different places, but ultimately ended up in Los Angeles. You, you can't make a living uh, jumping into acting right off the bat. And so uh, it didn't take very long for me to uh, resort to what I knew best and uh, woodworking came pretty dang quick. And so uh, at that point we were staying at a place that had a little single car garage and a detached single car garage, which is a commodity in California. And uh, it was a 12 by 18, no power. I had to run a hundred foot extension cord out to it. It was constantly shortened the, the fourplex that we that we stayed in always. We couldn't run the AC or, or anything when I was working. Started building paint grade furniture, man, built-ins, things of that nature. And it just went crazy. My wife was a part of a, a Facebook group. And essentially just started putting out that I, that I built things. And it was a pretty tight knit group there in Burbank. And it just went insane. Couldn't keep up with it. And that was it. No advertising whatsoever. Just did nothing but these people on this, on this uh, Facebook group. And uh, that went great for a solid year, man. And uh, that was the beginning of it. Ultimately, it's just, it doesn't matter how well you do in, in Burbank, especially, but um, unless you're clearing 500 grand a year or so, you're, you're not making a living in California. And uh, my wife convinced me to move to her hometown, Huntsville, Alabama, where we currently are, and uh, made the move here. And the business did not go so well at first. Making the shift, I was kind of dealing with some mental things. I didn't take to it very well. Um, and, and I just was so underprepared, man. I, it was, I was trying to take on actual woodworking and not paint grade furniture. Uh, my shop was so, it was underpowered heavily, man. I didn't have dust collection. I was trying to run real machines. It was just a mess. And, um, and that unfortunately came to a screeching halt, kind of mentally defeated me. And, and then COVID pretty much was right around the corner, months away from when this kind of came crashing down. And I uh, was like, I got to get a job, man. So I, I ended up selling boats at Tracker Marine Boat Center um, out of Cabela's. And just to get some experience so I could get a job at a car dealership. And uh, pretty much the majority of year 20 and 21, I was selling cars. And uh, the bug just really started coming back. I was getting in touch with people again and they wanted to work. I came to terms with it. And I, it just, it's a, it's a passion of mine that I've, I've tried to run from to some degree, oddly enough. But it, uh, it hit hard and I, I dove in, man, all the way. And here we are back again in, in a new shop. And it's just been, it's been heavenly. It really does seem from the outside that you are running from the inevitable. You you said <laughs> you said I'm 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 running from it and I hear that in everything you're saying. Your family has been building furniture and woodworking for generations and sometimes there is just that passion that somebody has that no matter if they want to get out or not it keeps pulling them back in and that really does seem like what you've been dealing with for your entire life. You've had the experience of running a furniture company and working at furniture companies all across the country. And we talk a lot on this show about how it's really hard to give advice about running a furniture business because the way you run it depends really on where you're operating. And you've worked in big cities, you've worked in smaller markets, you've worked all over and had all these different experiences. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between, say, a larger market and a smaller market or just working at different places 
around the country and having to change the way you're doing business depending on where you are. Oh yeah, man. You know, and there was all, there's also a time period between each one. So there's, there's so many different um, technological aspects to it as well, but mainly when it comes to a big city and then comparative to um, comparatively to Huntsville, which is very uh, similar to Anchorage where I'm from Anchorage, Alaska, it, as far as its size, its layout, its space and such, it's, it's very similar, but um, specifically California to, uh, to Huntsville would be just the overwhelming volume of people you could deal with. Um, and, and just a snap of a finger, you could have 20 people reach out to you. Um, so the, the biggest difference would be health. Um, you know, being in California, it, I, I don't know if you could successfully operate a, a shop to make a genuine living without having employees. And, and that, that was one of the, the barriers I was up against as, as we started to decide to leave was uh, I couldn't keep up with it, man. It was getting to the point where people were emailing me actually frustrated uh, that I wasn't responding to them. You know, my wife was getting involved. She was trying to email as well, but it was just impossible to keep up with it. It was, I was trying to build out of a little 12 by 13 shop running a or hundred foot cord out there. And I could only plug two machines at a time. And I'm building these 12 foot tall by 18 foot wide built-ins that I had to paint. It was just, it was overwhelming uh, to be able to deal with the, the volume, which is not a bad thing to be dealing with by any means, but it, it just at that moment in time, which I, I, I wasn't pricing properly. There's so many things I was learning the hard way at that time, um, but it, I needed to, to get that organized financially so that I could in fact have the help that I, that I needed. Fast forward to being here. I mean, there's no doubt that you can scale a company anywhere you go and, and take on employees. You know, if that is your goal and that's ultimately where you wanna be, obviously you can get that done. Take on as much work as you can and start uh, bringing in employees, but it is far more manageable uh, to deal with clients here. And it's not to say that there's not a volume here that you can keep that, that could sustain work, but it's just not so overwhelmingly just, it's, it's not just covering you 24 uh, seven the same way. And it just has to do with the fact that you're talking about uh, here in Huntsville, I think we have a couple hundred thousand people. And as you know, I'm sure uh, in, in California, you're talking about millions of people. So it's just, it, just in the neighborhood alone, uh, there in Burbank, I want to say there was 58,000 people that are part of that Facebook group. And then it ultimately, their friends started getting involved. And it, the biggest difference, and I, and I think it's kind of an obvious one, is just the overall, just the difference in populations and how overwhelming that can get and uh, trying to take, take that on by yourself. You had a successful company when you were in California. And you said it yourself that having business and having an overwhelming amount of business is a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. And a lot of people might not understand what you're saying with that, because how could having too much work be a bad thing, but you can be drowning in work and you lose the ability to keep track of things, to be able to do things well, and to be able to run your business properly when you have too much work. So you need to be able to maintain a good balance of work coming in and the amount of work that you can produce and send out. So I do hear you on that. When you were in California, it was word of mouth. You got all of your jobs and it just started to snowball. And that was how you built up this reputation. You got a lot of work from that. But then when you moved, you didn't have that word of mouth and you didn't have that base and you weren't able to sustain your company. And that's why you had to shut it down for a little bit. But now that you're back, talk about how you started getting clients in this new area, a place that you didn't have any roots in, a place that you 
you needed to start from scratch. How did you build back up your clients and your name in the community? Yeah, absolutely. If there's any message that I want to get across to anybody that's starting this out, um, is this topic right here. Um, and I wish it, you know, it wasn't a tool that I could have used at the time because obviously it just wasn't at that point as far as social media goes and the ability to promote. Um, here recently, this would have been with, within the past couple of years, I was watching uh, Angel City Lumber and they're in Los Angeles. And he is just a, he's, he's also got a woodworking um, company as well. Like he's just very, very locally known there. And I mean, the shop there is like 25,000 square feet. It's just insanely huge as far as his operation goes. And um, the guy asked him, what do you do for advertisement? It must be insane. You know, you, your bill, whatever it is, what's the overhead on your, on your, uh, your advertisement? And he said that he simply and only advertises on Instagram ads. He said it's the only thing exclusively, the only thing he does. And when he said that, it just kind of, this little light bulb went off. I'm like, well, I mean, if that's all he's doing, granted he did have some big names behind him, which obviously changes the, the dynamic quite a bit. But I went ahead and put out, I think I only put $15 on the ad. You know, I, I don't recall exactly what the first ad was, but I put the ad out on Instagram and it was for the region of essentially Northern Alabama, Southern Tennessee, a little bit of Mississippi and Georgia. And it, it was just overwhelming uh, to see the kind of response that we could get and just how quickly we could have people reaching out to us, not just, just a little conversation, genuinely inquiring about furniture off of one ad that I spent $15 on. And from that point and what we've done since with the advertisements and, and putting out promotions, it's, it feels great knowing the kind of tools that we have technologically to be able to, to promote our business now. Um, anybody that has a shop or, or, or tools for that matter, anybody that has a phone to be able to get an Instagram going, um, you can promote your work, it, whether it's your services, whether it's you have a catalog style of business where, you're, where you want to be able to sell specific types of furniture that you have designed that you want to be able to manufacture, Whatever the case is, advertise on Facebook and Instagram. And I promise you, the kind of response we got on that was just um, so relieving because diving back in was uh, was a bit terrifying at first because I, I was finally at that point where I had fallen in love even, even further with woodworking. And I'm a father of three now. I'm married. Um, and I'm at this point where we're trying to create a haven here on our property and eventually even a, a forever property. And um, just this image of me working at home, having my shop and, and, and building with my hands and using my craft. Uh, I've fallen in love with it in a way that I never thought I would. In fact, as you mentioned earlier, and, and, I, and I alluded to, I was running away from that idea. Like it was something that wasn't worthy of what I thought life was supposed to be. I'm supposed to be this actor who, you know, makes millions of dollars and I can take care of my whole family. And I bought into that idea so thoroughly I had convinced myself of that idea to the point where anything less than that was a failure. My life was a failure if I did not succeed in that manner in some form or fashion. And when we made the move to Alabama, that first year was so rough because of that. It was like I was, I was cutting off that dream. I had created a life. I had, I had met a woman. I had gotten married. We had a child. My business was doing good. And I just... I finally saw that whatever the case was, I was doing all right in California and moving felt like I was severing a successful part of me. That first year was truly depressing, um, feeling that I wasn't going to be able to reach that ultimate goal that I was just that I was just speaking of. Um, but here we are now at this point. It's uh, I, I'm sure it's maturity. I'm 33 now. I'm sure there's a part of that that comes with it. But now that we have these tools, it uh, 
it feels so good knowing that we can do this on our own and not have to bring in some giant companies or pay people just outrageous money to be able to advertise for you. Um, it's, it's a tool that I highly recommend people use. I want to stay on the money topic. And when you were in the bigger market, when you were in California, you said that you were getting all these jobs, but you were still learning your pricing and some things you were still underpricing and you weren't able to make the amount of money you wanted to make because of your pricing. Now that you're in a smaller market, talk about what your pricing looks like today so you can have this sustainable business where it's a lifetime business and you are out there working in your shop and are able to support yourself and don't have to keep running away from furniture and coming back to it? Absolutely. Um, very good question. You know, there's no doubt that the market that you exist in, it, it, it not entirely, but that is going to dictate a lot of it. Uh, you know, like for instance, if you're in a town that's going through a bad recession, they're all getting hit real bad. Lots of people are losing their jobs. Uh, that might not be a market that you're trying to get into with a high priced item, whether it's a good quality item or not. I mean, you still are going to get clients, but it may not be a, a an area that you're going to be thriving in per se. So you might want to come at it with more items than just your, your high value items. Um, but I, I've been very blessed to be in, in the, the town that I am. Uh, there's a lot of government work here. Uh, NASA's here. And I mean, there's just an endless amount of, of civilian contractors when it comes to the FBI. The FBI is here now. Facebook's here now, Amazon's here now. And then, and then the town is growing at a rate that is actually hard to fathom because especially just in the period of time that we've been here. Uh, so all of that is in my, is in my favor because there, there, there's no lack of money here. And I'm not saying that's the only, um, the only way to view it, but that, that's just a reality. There's a lot of money here, uh, people that can afford furniture. And so that, that plays a role and I, and I at least have to point that out because you're not just gonna go throw prices out there and just get anybody to buy. Obviously, you have to target a specific, um, a specific clientele, and that's not to say that you you uh, discriminate towards people that can't. There's other ways to go about it, whether it be financing or, or like I said, lower priced items. But I at least had to touch on that point. You know that that is that is an important factor. And in regards to the pricing in general, the difference between the two. You know, when I was in California, you know, I, I'd reach out and I'd consult my dad and I'd ask him, you know, how, how exactly did you price? And you know, he would give me the best answer he could give me off of what I was building and how he could get that to translate. And, um, and ultimately, what I ended up doing at the time, and this is something you hear quite commonly when you look it up online, but that's essentially taking the cost of all your material and timesing it by three or timesing it by four or what have you. And that's going to be where you land on it, right? And I started doing that. But the problem was, is one, immaturity. And I mean, literally, I, I was in my young 20s and I, I was all by myself, you know, and I was, to be honest, I was nervous. And so when you go into this this house that has people that are very established that are doing quite well and you come into them and you tell them the price of your work um you give them the quote whatever it is over the phone and they very sternly look at you or speak to you over the phone and tell you oh no i i can't pay that but you're now in this position where you go i'm trying to build this business i'm trying to scale i'm trying to make some money to support my wife and kids or what have you and these people clearly want to do this but they're not willing to do it for that and so now you go, okay, even if your price was, you know, enough to be able to cover your living uh, in, in your shop, you're willing to, to back off on that price just to get that job, which, which I hate to say, it, but, it, but it's a failing mentality. And it's, it's, no, it's no offense to anybody, but you just, you can't do that. Um, and, and, and as I mentioned about how I priced my stuff, I wasn't taking into consideration so many things. I wasn't genuinely sitting down and budgeting out not only my life, but also what it takes to run the shop. So 
the biggest problem was was capitulating and moving back on my prices simply to get jobs to try to build my portfolio. Um, fast forward to now, and the difference is one, your prices are your prices. There's no offense. If someone does not want it, I promise you, to anybody listening, you are going to do better by not taking the job. Getting yourself into a situation where you're taking on a job that you're not getting paid enough it's not a matter of, of greed and feeling like you're not being paid a, a boatload of money. It is literally going to cost you money. You're going to end up paying money to build this person's furniture. So it's, it's no offense whatsoever. If they can't pay the price, just simply say, I hear you, maybe another time and move on. Uh, so number one, you got to figure out your prices and genuinely take in everything you got going on. And these are obvious. I didn't come up with this. This is business one-on-one, right? You have to actually lay out all of your costs, everything that you need to cover. And of course, what your target's going to be and what kind of profit margin you need to be in to be able to hit that target. But the biggest thing was having the confidence to sit in front of somebody, whether I was in need of a job or not, and stick to that price. Without a doubt, it's the biggest difference. And now, you know, you said what the price is, and that, that literally is all it is. It's just a matter of taking in, which I have a much bigger shop now, but my complete total cost of living, all the overhead for the shop itself, and then uh, what profit margin I want to be in to reach whatever goal I have set. And uh, that, that dictates the price. And, and it's just simply that. You come from five generations of woodworkers, of furniture makers, of people who have been doing this. And you come from an artistic family. And so there's a lot of the design world in your history. And you've had furniture companies and have worked in furniture companies all around the country. So you have a great design background to build on. When you do it yourself, when it's your furniture and you're building for a client and they bring you a design or you come up with your own design, how do you make it your own while still having that design background looming over you? How, how do you respect the generations that came before you, but still be able to make your furniture and your company and what you're putting out there your own. So when we first moved to, to Alabama, I had mentioned that I was just kind of, I was going through a whole lot mentally. There was outside, you know, things that were, that were affecting the way I was at the time. But I mentioned that the business essentially just could not really get up and, and go. And it really had nothing to do with the business itself. It had to do with me and, and, and me only. One of the biggest struggles I was dealing with at that time was an obsessive fixation, if you will, on having to build a 100% original piece to the point where I would have these thoughts to myself like, oh, well, you know, a, a painter, he can, you know, get on a piece of paper and, and do a 100% original thing every time. Or, or you have uh, people who write books, you know, and for the most part, they write original stories and it's almost expected of them. And I kept trying to draw that parallel to other artists that, oh, I, I'm a fraud if I don't come up with 100% original pieces, all the way to the point where I just expected everything that my father, my grandfather, everything they've ever built, any legend in our industry, anything they've ever built is always 100% original and I'm just a fraud. It poisoned my way of thinking to the point of honestly believing that I just don't think I'm cut out for this. As hard as it was, even though, like I mentioned, I was almost running from it, but then to come to this realization that I feel that I'm also not, I'm not capable of meeting the standard that they have before me was a, a mentally defeating time. And to the point where, like I said, I, I, I up and just said, you know what? I'm just going to run my family into the ground. I'm going to get us in a bunch of debt. I, I just need to, I need to figure something else out right now. 
what ultimately brought me to truly falling not only back in love with woodworking, but to a deeper depth than I ever thought I could was understanding that one, it's almost impossible to create something 100% original. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I heard someone here recently say, we are dealing with an ancient material, wood. Almost every design ever created has been done to some degree. I mean, we are dealing with something genuinely ancient. And if you look at any of the legends, or the big names, anybody that you can pull off the top of your head that have made a, a, a giant impact on this industry, even if they have something you may feel is so 100% them and their design, I can almost guarantee you that is built upon many people before them. The, the best way to become a good designer is to study good designers. It is to build their work, 100% even. But throughout that process, being able to take good design and add your element to it, your, your fingerprint, so to speak, is ultimately how you begin to create your look, your style, so that when someone looks at it, they undeniably see you and your work. But the biggest thing was, for one, giving myself the permission to, to use other people's work. And, and I think it's gotten to the point now, because I, I see it even just in, in younger woodworkers when I'm talking to them, or, or even when I see things online, it's this idea that you have to build 100% original pieces. And it, it, it genuinely can become a toxic way of thinking. And, and it's just so far from the truth, especially when you look at the people that we think have done 100% originals. And uh, and even when I talk to my dad and or, or when I look at their work after studying en enough of other people, you see that a lot of this is built on the foundation of many giants before us. And it's just simply because of how long it's been around. You've had the generations before you, like we've talked about, and you've had your company for a while, and you even failed at a company and started again. And failure, when you can step back and take a look at it, gives you more of an insight into a business than success because you can see where it went wrong and you can step back up and, and get back into the business and learn from your mistakes. And now you're back and you're doing this successfully and you're running a business again and you can see a real runway for it, that it can be a sustainable business for the future. From all the experiences that you've had, that you've seen your family go through, that you've gone through yourself, what's something that sticks out for people who are looking to get into this business or for people who already have businesses but don't feel like their company is going as well as they want? What's something that sticks out for you that you could share with people listening? I guess an easy answer, almost a cop-out would be versatility. It, I'll go into my, my actual answer, but, but I have to at least touch on the fact that you have to be versatile. And, and I know that's quite vague, but like, for instance, let's say you specialize in, in built-ins or you specialize in casework. You, you have to scale just slightly. I'm not saying that you can't get into a niche in that, you know, I know there's people out there that can hit it and they just have the clientele base and they get into the right, the, the right cultures and the right communities. And they manage off of that and um, power to them. And if you can figure that out, by all means, man, rock out. Um, but being able to have a, a few extra tools in the in the box, so to speak, being able to jump into something else, whether that be chairs or whether that be uh, cabinets, you know, being able to have a little bit extra is always good. But more so would be creativity. You know, bring something, whether it's a, you know, I say fresh, but that's, that's almost disingenuous because uh, I know people have done this before. But, you know, one thing that I think... Uh, that, that I, I've at least been exploring is not only taking on commission work, but also, uh, you know, offering things on your website, um, have a store, what have you. And this is something that I'm actually playing with right now and having a few items that you make that you've gone through and you built all the jigs for, 
um, that you have everything ready to go. Don't sock up a bunch of inventory. Don't buy a bunch of wood for it. Don't build them already. That's, that's a losing mentality right there, unfortunately. But having everything to manufacture specific pieces of furniture and almost cataloging them. And the reason why I mention it is uh, one of the biggest aspects of this business that I have realized will play into you succeeding far greater than most things, and that is efficiency. Being able to go from one job to the next and keep them going. It's almost like uh, like um, like serving, man. Turning and burning, keeping the tables, filling back up, so you can you know you can turn over the the restaurant more than once. You have to be able to go to the next job efficiently, and so having things that you can manufacture and knock out fairly quickly. everything's essentially their options are right there in front of them. They still get a custom piece of furniture. They still get to pick the type of wood. They can choose the shape of the top. But when it comes to very specific details of the build, um, those are the parts that you've already created, or at least you built the jigs to create those pieces. They get to pretty much have an entirely custom piece made for them. Uh, Commission work can get very drawn out. You know, they, you, you talk to them on the phone and, and this is no disrespect to anybody. I understand why they want to dive in and they want to look at all the different colors um, they want to see samples. Um, they want to have a drawing. After that, they, they have things going on in their house sometimes, or you're working with the designer, so they have other things they have to do in that house. And it can get real drawn out. You can, from the moment you get an inquiry, it can take three months to start building for that person. So having something on the side that you can quickly knock out, and I'm talking a matter of a couple of days, you can knock out something and, uh, and there be a profit margin in it. It's just a matter of being able to deliver more than just one thing so you can actually sustain. Thank you for sharing that and all the rest of the things that we've talked about on this episode. I, I really do appreciate it. And I know that everybody out there listening appreciates it as well. So thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your story. And I wish you nothing but success in your business going forward. Awesome. Thank you, Ethan, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you got value out of it, please think about leaving a review and subscribing wherever you listen. To learn more about the series, please visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime with questions or guest suggestions to hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can find me at The Build With Ethan on Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the show and can't wait to bring you the next one.